0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 154 of F Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features one of the most inspirational photographers of our generation, in my opinion. He has focused the attention of his lenses on the little things that matter so much to the natural world. Welcome Clay Bolt to the podcast. Clay Bolt is a natural history and conservation photographer specializing in the world's smaller creatures who regularly partners with organizations such as the National Geographic Society and the Xerces Society for the Invertebrate Conservation. His current major focus is on North America's native bees and the important roles that they play in our lives. He was a leading voice in the fight to protect the rusty-patched bumblebee under the Endangered Species Act, which became North America's first federally protective native bee in 2017. In 2019, Clay became the first photographer to document a living Wallace's giant bee, the world's largest bee, as part of a four-person exploration team to rediscover the species in the Indonesian islands. His current role as communications lead for the World Wildlife Fund's Northern Great Plains program, he is developing strategies to fight insect and grassland biodiversity loss by gaining greater understanding of the effects that neonic pesticides have on wildlife. Clay is an associate fellow in the International League of Conservation Photographers and past president of, North, of the North American Nature Photography Association. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we get started, I did want to remind listeners that my friend Gary Randall still has some workshop openings for his 2020 Alaska Photography Workshops. You could not meet a nicer guy than Gary, so I really think that you'll love going with him to photograph bears on the Kenai Peninsula. The costs of the workshop cover everything except for airfare. I heard he'll even give you a foot massage if you ask nicely. Check it out by going to gary-randall.com. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Clay Bolt, it is so cool to have you on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, man, you have been highly recommended by several of our guests in the past, and I'm just really excited to finally get to talk to you.
1: <laughs> Likewise, and, and glad to hear that people are saying mostly good things about me. <laughs> right, m- mostly good. <laughs> yeah, I don't want it at all to be good.
0: Right. I, I mean, that's not fun.
1: No, I'm trying to have sort of a <laughs> photographic bad boy image. So right, was, I got. I,
0: I kind of. I kind of got that vibe looking at your website, like you got a, you know, kind of that punk rock photographer style.
1: Yeah, you got that on your website? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm not sure that you saw the right website, but cool. That's great news. Whoever you looked at, keep doing it.
0: <laughs> uh, just kidding, just kidding. So, well, for people who are not familiar with you, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, so I guess the uh, canned answer, the canned response is that I'm a natural history and conservation photographer who has spent my career focusing on the little things in life, the the insects and the amphibians and the reptiles and the species that are um, often overlooked and underappreciated. And um, I've worked with many of the world's leading conservation organizations trying to tell the stories of these species. And probably for the last six or seven years, I've been very focused on native bee conservation here in north america um and that's branched out to working in other parts of the world but really i'm just trying to use my photos and my lectures and my writing and all these different tools to um help people number one appreciate these important species that don't often get the spotlight but also help to protect them
0: mm. yeah that i i i I think those kind of species often get overlooked. Like you were saying, I mean, especially the insects, like people are just like, oh, they're gross and they're weird. And I just, I don't want to know anything about them. Just get them away from me.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's absolutely true. Um, And it's, it's funny. I do feel like there's a growing awareness of the importance of at least certain types of insects. Um, but as I'm sure we'll get into at some point, unfortunately we're facing a crisis in the world right now, um, with the loss of insects, the decline of insects due to a number of reasons. And I just really want to emphasize to people that they're so vitally important 99% of life on earth is smaller than your finger, your little finger. And most of those are insects and other invertebrates. And so it's sort of like saying, I care about wildlife, but not caring about the vast majority of wildlife on this earth.
0: Right. well well i I think it'll be fun to talk talk more about that for sure. Um, how did you even get into this world of um, conservation photography?
1: Well, so I guess going way back, um, I've always been really passionate about insects since I was a little kid. I'm not really sure exactly uh, what drew me to them, but it's just one of my earliest memories were you know raising praying mantises and and collecting fireflies and all these kinds of things. And I also really like to draw. And so throughout my entire life, I was always you know, focused on science, but also art. And I went to school and got a degree in graphic design because I was told, hey, this is a way you can make money with art and uh, started working in advertising and soon found that that really wasn't what I had expected it to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I was just really feeling bummed out. I didn't really have a lot of time to do illustration anymore and was, you know, working a lot and ended up taking a trip to Australia in 2001, brought along an old camera and made a lot of really crummy photos. I was a terrible (laughs) photographer and in university I was a terrible photographer. But after that trip, I really fell in love with it and realized that while I didn't maybe have time to make a painting, I had time to go out and snap a few photos. And one thing led to the next, and I started photographing uh, plants and insects and just different things I was finding um, in my home at that time in South Carolina, where I'm originally from, and began to work with a nature conservancy probably in around 2003, uh, photographing salamanders and um, sort of helping to fill in their photo files. And, And that really just led me down this path of advocating for the species that I was photographing um, because early on I, I was like making these photos and trying to enter in art shows and that kind of thing and then it just dawned on me that I was in a way profiting from the things I was photographing without giving anything back and that was mm. a real pivot point for me
0: yeah <clears throat> that's something I feel like I've been thinking a lot more about in terms of my photography too in terms of you know I'm taking photographs of beautiful places, um, but I I want it to be more than that. So I think that's why I'm always so drawn to having conversations with people like you who are are actually doing that on a day-to-day basis.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I definitely also see the appeal of just enjoying photographing beautiful places and beautiful things. Sometimes (laughs) I wish, to be honest, that I could just spend more time sort of relishing the moment being in nature and i do that but i also feel like so much of the work around conservation is like this is the most beautiful thing i've ever seen now like i have to like i feel compelled to try to help people understand why it's important not to lose it so it's a there's a lot of work in conservation art for these days unfortunately
0: yeah have you have you seen uh over the last gosh i don't know uh, three to five years have you seen uh, a growing need for
1: that type of work i certainly see a growing awareness of that kind of work i mean and it does it definitely well it's hard to know i mean definitely a lot is happening in the world it seems like things are speeding up as population increases and i guess the demands we place in the world are are growing and so there are more people that are aware through the media through the internet there's a lot more people that are aware of uh conservation issues, which in turn means that publishers and outlets are looking for more photos of that kind of thing. So hmm. I would definitely say that there's no shortage of stories to to tell. Um, I guess the downside of it is, of course, that, you know, when you're working with nonprofits, I mean, I don't know who's making a ton of money at photography anymore these days, but I definitely know that like, you know, while there is a lot of work to go around, it takes a lot of time to do these kinds of stories. And, you know, it's it's sort of like you you're doing a lot of things to pay the bills essentially.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I feel like every photographer I've ever talked to has lots and lots of irons in the fire. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. And I think for me like I really while I consider myself a photographer first, um I also would say that more than anything my passion is around communication and so I I do a lot of different things to tell the stories, whether it's you know doing interviews like this or giving presentations or writing articles or uh, working on books or just all of these different kinds of things to tell the story. I mean at the end of the day that's really what I'm after is to to uh, convey a message
0: yeah <clears throat> so tell us a little bit about your work around uh, native bee conservation and why you feel like that's an important endeavor
1: Well, probably about six or so years ago, like everybody else, I'd heard a lot about what was happening with honeybees dying off. And although I mentioned like I mentioned earlier, I'd always loved insects. I didn't really know very much about bees. I knew that there were bumblebees and I knew that there were honeybees, but, and and sweat bees in general, but I didn't really know much beyond that. Um, So I decided, Hey, I'm just going to go see what I find. And I started photographing bees that I would find in, in my garden at home. And, and the more I learned about what I was photographing, the more I realized that there was a real deficit of information online at that time about native bees. And I was just delighted with the things that I was finding I these beautiful striped metallic bees that were really tiny flying around. And literally like I spent lots of time outside, but just didn't see them. I was just blind <laughs> to them. And, um, I also learned at that time, um, while a lot of people were like, save the honeybee, the honey, honeybee's going away. I realized that honeybees are not native to North America, and it was the bee that really everyone was focused on, and and it real it, it sort of dawned on me that this is like essentially saying save save the cow, save <laughs> again. right? You know, it's they're they're amazing animals, they're they're important, but they're also not native, and they're found around the world. And while the numbers were sort of declining in some ways, they're able to be bred in these commercial facilities, or you know, through breeding and that kind of thing, and so they were okay. But the native species were not getting the press they deserved. And um, the other part of it was that I learned that while there's like 20,000 species of bee in the world that we know of, there's approximately 4,000 in the U.S. and Canada. And so most of those had not been covered. And I was like, wow, this is like, there's so many stories to tell. There's so many species that haven't been photographed very well. You know, This is a huge opportunity to sort of try to shift the conversation a little bit.
0: That's awesome. I had no idea that there was that many species of native bee.
1: <laughs> yeah. And they do, they live in so many different types of habitat. Um, they, are generalist. There are generalist species like bumblebees. There are species like in the American Southwest, just one of the highest, the areas in the world with the highest amount of diversity, because many of those bees, not only do bees like dry climates, but many of those bees time their emergence with these desert plants that may bloom every other year, and all these kinds of things. So there's lots of specialization. Um, they're really fantastic, and they are so important for our world. They do so many things that honeybees can't do. Um, and so many of our native plants really and truly depend on them to such a degree that that if they were to be lost, it would certainly have big impacts on the ecosystem.
0: Sure. It's, it's interesting that I feel like a lot of photographers haven't necessarily made the connection uh, you know, across the ecosystem in terms of, oh, I like photographing beautiful things like wildflowers and desert cactus and all of these things that I find beautiful in the world. But I feel like a lot of people haven't made the connection that it's because of things like native bees that are making that possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and sort of like layer upon layer, like the, the thing that I find, the reason I one of the reasons I love macro photography is because you know, you're looking at things on such a small level. You're so close up to what's happening and yet it's just layer after layer of interesting things that you can discover because most people aren't taking the time to to look at those things um i have a good friend stephen david johnson who's doing this incredible work in vernal pools which are like these ephemeral or temporary pools that happen in the spring like rainwater comes in or the snow melt and then this is where like salamanders breed and fairy shrimp and all of these things and These are essentially like big puddles, but the stuff that he's photographing, it's like peering into a magical world. And it's just been a real reminder to me even that that there's so much out there that we've just not seen before.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I was actually recently, uh, I spent one day near Fresno with my friend David Hunter, and Mm. he was showing me some vernal pools kind of around in that area. And I was like, I didn't even know what a vernal pool was.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think that the cool thing about nature is it doesn't matter how much you focus on a particular subject or topic, it continues to give. And I think for me, that's the thing that I I love so much about it. I mean, as much as I love photography, it's the subject matter that compels me. It's like the the never-ending joy of being surprised by what I see that really drives me on. And I I am encouraged one of the things I like about the kind of work I do is that even if I'm talking to an audience about a weird wasp or a caterpillar or something like that through photography, through storytelling, I can get people really interested in something that they probably would have never seen before simply because the stories are so amazing. the behavior is so amazing it's like if you like science fiction, it's there in nature. if you <laughs> like you know beauty it's there. everything that compels people can be found you know in nature and i and i love that about this work
0: yeah and i think what's like you know almost like peeling a an onion Mm. you start to realize that uh, not only is it you know science fiction and horror and beauty you start peeling it back and you start to see how it's all interconnected and how it shapes the world we live in and how we're so dependent upon those things for day-to-day life that we take for granted almost
1: yeah it's really it's really humbling honestly like just. I love the fact that the more I learn about nature, the less I realize I know. And I don't, I don't <laughs> say, but it's just like I know nothing. And we people know nothing, really. And tr- like every day, I'm reading something that just blows my mind, and that's exciting.
0: Yeah. So, one of the things you said earlier was uh, in regards to kind of the declining insect population, and I think. I've even heard headlines like the insect apocalypse is happening and I think most people think of that and they're like cool less less insects that's that's fine with me you know less creepy crawlies and less things to uh to eat all of my tomatoes in my garden and things like that mm-hmm. but tell tell us a little bit about that phenomenon and why we should be thinking about that
1: Well and um, this is a truly <sighs> Frightening topic, I think, more so than I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think people hear that and they're like, less things to bite me, less things to irritate me when I'm trying to have a picnic. But the fact is that insects are just so important to our world. I cannot be overstated. E. Wilson, the great biologist and entomologist, estimates that there's 10 quadrillion insects in the world at any given time. Like, the biomass, the weight of insects outweighs people many times over. And those. Insects are doing lots of things, not just, you know, feeding birds and pollinating, but also doing things like keeping our water clean and helping seeds to be dispersed and helping to turn the soil, which keeps carbon in the soil, which, you know, if you look at the science helps to reduce greenhouse gases. I mean, insects and invertebrates in general are so vital to our world. It's sort of like, um, w- without them, everything will change. Um. And so it's also not just again the bees that I love so much, but it's it's all the other things, the worms and the, you know, the, the creepier things like centipedes and millipedes and and snails and slugs. All of these things have a big impact on our world, and there are a lot of things that are coming to light now about potentially why insects might be declining, um, and. Like there was a study that came out recently, which has received both praise and criticism, but basically it was a big lit review of all the studies that have been put forth about why insects are declining. And this particular paper came up with a number of like in the next few decades, uh, up to 40% of insects in the world may be extinct. or or disappear and that's that's tremendous when you do the math you think about okay if there's 10 quadrillion i can't even begin to do that math but that's a lot of insects that are dying off um and the causes range from you know things like that you would imagine like habitat loss um but even things like light pollution is causing a big problem for for nocturnal insects and for larvae of different things um And one of the biggest threats that we have right now is a type of pesticide Mm -hmm. called a neonicotinoid, which is, um, this will get a little technical, but basically it's a pesticide that was really widely began to be used in the 1990s. Um, And it was praised because unlike DDT, which was a cause for, you may know of Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Spring. DDT is a type of organochloride pesticide that is sprayed into the environment, and it would do things like cause birds' eggshells to become very brittle and break, and that's why you had declines in birds like um, falcons and and bald eagles and things like that. Um, so it was sprayed; it was applied by spraying. Well, neonic is they're also called is what's called a systemic pesticide, which means that 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 chemical can be placed on a seed or roots of a plant and it becomes part of the plant. The plant absorbs it. And so say like a sunflower, a sunflower absorbs that. Normally a sunflower is not toxic, but when it absorbs that chemical into its its tissues, the whole entire plant becomes toxic, including the pollen that bees come and take or the seeds that birds eat, all of those things. And um, to make a long story short, what happens is, Only 1% to 2% of that chemical goes into the plant. The rest of it washes into waterways, into the soil, um, affecting really everything. And and initially it was praised because it didn't have to be sprayed, but it turns out that it's going into everything. And it's beginning to affect not just insects, but also non-target species like birds and even deer. Um, So it's causing widespread declines in something that I think is very akin to a second silent spring.
0: So do you know if if that uh if the plant is absorbing that, is it also like I'm assuming you know they're using it on all kinds of uh produce. Right. Like that means that we're also as humans ingesting small amounts of that
1: pesticide? Probably large amounts to be honest. Because <laughs> unless you're eating organic, um it's pretty much on everything. For example, one hundred percent of corn seeds that are not organic have um have neonics on them. 75% of soy or somewhere th- in that neighborhood, two thirds of soy have uh, neonics on them. Like it's it's on so many things, even bird seed that you get that's not organically produced has neonics on it. So the birds are eating it. It's truly frightening. And the thing is, okay, so even though it was praised as a, as an alternative to, um, to these DDTs and other pesticides, actually what happened is, Um, If something's sprayed in the environment, for example, like a DDT, if it's sprayed or dropped from from a plane, it's considered a pesticide by government regulations. But if it's applied to a good, there's a loophole that's called a treated article or treated good. So, for example, lumber has a treated coating on it to keep insects from eating it. But in this law, that chemical is supposed to stay with the product at all times. So seed producers and these chemical companies like Bayer and Syngenta and uh, Monsanto figured out that there's this loophole so they could coat seeds in this chemical. So there's really very little regulation on how it's applied. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, they bought up most of the seed companies. So like 60% of the world's seed companies are owned by these big conglomerates and through these loopholes and, and certain agreements, like in crop insurance, the chemical is ubiquitous right now. And people are consuming it. And I guarantee you, it's having lots of effects that we're not even aware of yet.
0: Right. We haven't had enough time yet to to research it. And I'm sure those companies have highly, uh, I don't know, influenced politicians to say like, oh, you can't do research <laughs> on the effects of this chemical Um that kind of stuff just makes my head explode <laughs> I know,
1: not to get too far down the road but um and to the weeds i suppose like not only are there government regulations for example you your listeners can look this up there's a provision in in the farm bill which is called crop insurance and this policy means that if someone plants a crop and it fails then basically the the, the farmer gets a return and so there's a provision right now in crop insurance that if uh, a producer doesn't use what's called a certified seed, which is basically a seed that has these pesticides on it, then they don't get a full return on their money. So they're basically being forced to purchase seeds that have these chemicals on them. Um, and there, there's a lot of evidence. There was a... Um, recent report that came out that showed that early critics of these chemicals have it's basically been supported now by the chemical companies to start talking about other things as the cause of bee decline and so on and so forth so these are sort of imagine like big tobacco but that's what's happening with these um, pesticide companies the same kind of like um, greenwashing campaigns that are happening they're very clever and they have lots of money to put behind it
0: yeah and i feel like uh Gosh, probably in the early two thousands, there was a huge push for non GMO. Which, I mean, obviously these are genetically modified seeds with these pesticides included, but not all genetic modification is bad. So it's it's like, uh, unfortunately, it kind of got a bad name. Where you know the intent was good to eliminate the use of these pesticides and these types of seeds that are um, like the roundup and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on what, like, what can we do as photographers and consumers to, to help stave off some of the effects of, of this reality?
1: Well, I think (laughs) that's a good question. And I think, (laughs) you know, I think one of the things that we can potentially do is as photographers, we'll start there is starting to tell the stories of the, the loss, but also the, really bringing attention to the companies and the growers who are trying to do things right. Um, You know, because I think that the more attention the companies that are trying to do the right thing have, hopefully the the more people buy their product, which means that in turn it becomes more profitable to do things organically and that kind of thing. Um, But I think for me, like what I'm trying to do and what I will be trying to do is, is really just draw more attention to the story itself because it's similar to the native bee story as I as I began to get more into this work around insect decline and learn more about what's causing it, I had no idea of just how bad things are and, <laughs> and what the research is showing. And you know, it's like you said earlier about just looking at the beauty of nature, also looking at some of the detrimental things that are happening, unfortunately, is like an onion as well. And so the more you peel into it, the more you realize, holy cow, I got a lot of work to do.
0: Oh, we all have a lot of work to do.
1: <laughs> yes yes
0: what are what are some other things that we can do as just regular consumers
1: well number one i think the simplest thing is is spending a little extra money and buying um and i know it's hard but like buying either local produce that's been produced organically um, that's the very best thing i think you can do but also you know trying to support companies that are um, producing organic food food that doesn't have these chemicals that are bad for nature and that sort of thing. Um, But I also think we can do a lot to speak up to decision makers and say that, you know, like you can do a little research and figure out who's on the Senate and House Ag Committee, for example, and send letters, make calls, those kinds of things, um, you know, to try to support policy. Or you can donate to organizations that are supporting um, policies that are lobbying to help support policies that are good for nature. Um, unfortunately, you know, there, there are lots of different ways to use conservation photography and use your, your dollars to make a big difference. But sometimes with these really huge issues that are, that are, um, being funded by these multi billion dollar corporations, it's difficult to have a direct impact by yourself. Um, but, Working together, I think, and working with like-minded people, you can make an impact. Especially if you're bringing stories to light that people haven't really considered.
0: What are the what are some of the organizations that you recommend people support?
1: Um, well, certainly, like um, the National Wildlife Federation is a good one. Um, World Wildlife Fund, who I work for, um, Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, um, the NRDC. All of these organizations are doing really good work trying to bring more attention to the plight of um, invertebrates and landscapes that are being impacted by by um, these sort of big companies that are they're that using pesticides. And I'm really encouraged that that my organization is beginning to pay more attention to this. And I think it's a great opportunity for me to use the the information that I've been gathering to help hopefully make a big difference uh, within our work with food and those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. And I don't know if some people are aware of this, but I know like if you shop on Amazon, you can actually, uh, I think there's a way to make it to where like a percentage of your purchases go towards like the World Wildlife Fund or or things of that nature. I don't think it's that
1: hard to set up. No, it's not. No. Um, And I can't tell you exactly how to do that right now, but you can certainly do that. And there's like, um, I forget what it's called actually, but yeah, it's very possible to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, <clears throat> shifting gears a little bit, I I know that uh, that a lot of your work revolves around uh, bees, and um, I would love to hear about how you, you, you used photography to help uh, list the first species of native North American bee on the endangered species list.
1: Yeah, honestly, um, <laughs> it was such a wild ride, and it basically started... Just because of curiosity, I think so much of the work that I do, um, I just sort of bumble my way, no pun intended, into things that, um, that, you know, it's just because I'm curious and I keep asking questions, sometimes too many questions. Uh, but I was in Great Smoky Mountains National Park looking at their bee collection. I had been on the board of an organization called Discover Life in America, and they work very closely with Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And so I knew the park entomologist Becky Nichols. And I asked Becky if I could um, come up to the park and look at their bee collection um, because I'm not a trained entomologist. I, I love insects, but there's still so much to learn um, even after doing this for years. And so I wanted to see some of the bees that they had in their collection so that when I saw them in the field or when I photographed them, I'd have a better chance of figuring out what they were. Hmm. And as we were looking through the collection, towards the end, Becky brought out this this bumblebee and I wasn't really that interested in bumblebees. I figured at that point that like everyone's documented every bumblebee. I didn't know how many there were, but I didn't figure there were that many. And she brought up the specimen and she said, this is the rusty patched bumblebee. Um, And it hasn't been seen in the park in many years, but it used to be super common. And um, I've told the story many times in various places, but I really had it like an epiphany where I was looking at this bumblebee and there was a, a passenger pigeon, which once was the one of the most numerous species of birds in the world. And they suddenly basically disappeared almost overnight or, you know, over a period of several decades, but it seemed like overnight. And I was looking at this bee and I thought, this is just, this is going to be like another passenger pigeon. This is a bee that was around. Everybody took it for granted and suddenly it was gone. And Becky told me that in the past 15 years, that that bee had declined nearly 90% and they couldn't find it in the park anymore. Right. And I kind of realized like I must have grown up next to this bee, like spending time in the in the woods and the meadows at my grandfather's house. And I had never really even noticed it. And now I would probably never get a chance to see it, at least in at my home in the wild anymore. And I just began to wonder like, what can I do to bring more awareness to this? And so that led me on this process of, first of all, figuring out where it still existed. And I did find out that there was a, a reasonable population in, in, around Madison, Wisconsin, and, and Illinois, and, and uh, Minnesota. And so I started working with my friend, Neil Lozen of Day's Edge Productions, which is a great production company, to um, produce a film. And we pitched the idea of the film to the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. And fortunately, they were interested in giving us some seed money to produce the film. And so basically, the film is just my journey to figure out what's happening with this bee. It's a 20 minute film that we released a few years ago. And the reason we wanted to make a film is because number one, I mean, the rusty patch is a, a beautiful insect. I love it so much, but it's not the most charismatic. It's not the most beautiful of all bumblebees. It's a pretty general kind of bumblebee. And so I knew that we needed to tell its story in a way that was compelling to people. Um, I wanted to h- sort of add a human element to the story. And so we went around, we talked to experts. We found out a lot about what was happening with the, the bee. And the other reason we wanted to create the film was because we wanted an advocacy tool because, so if you want to list something on the, under the endangered species act, you have to present evidence scientists or or scientific organizations or conservation organizations have to present evidence to the U S fish and wildlife service that says we believe because of this research that this species um, should be protected. And then the fish and wildlife service has to come back within 90 days to present what's called a 90 day finding. So they review that information and they come back and say, yes, we agree with you or no, we don't. So at this time, It had been over 900 days since that information had been filed. Uh, Yeah. And which is, I mean, the Fish and Wildlife Service is understaffed and overwhelmed with the number of requests it's getting. So it's not uncommon for things to take a long time. But even after attempts at lawsuits and things like that, like nothing was happening. So it was really stuck in the system. But I felt like if we could create an advocacy film and images of a living rusty patch, you know, as opposed to an insect on a pen, that that we could sway public opinion because people were concerned about bees. So after we produced the film, we premiered it in National Geographic headquarters in Washington, D.C. I spoke on Capitol Hill during a congressional briefing and showed the film, which was an amazing opportunity. Um, and that was picked up in the Washington Post, and we I had talked to various other places. It was on the Atlantic and National Geographic Short Film Showcase. And um, I was even able to work with colleagues to produce a petition on change.org where the film was embedded. And that petition was elevated by change.org um, to their homepage. And we raised like 130,000 signatures, which we were in turn able to give to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And this all happened over a number of months. And eventually, uh, this was – I'm so terrible with dates, but I think it was like (laughs) September of 2017, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. um, The bee was uh, deemed worthy of being listed. And shortly after that, um, it was eventually added to the endangered species list. Um, There's a lot of things that happened during that process, but essentially it was – I was told by Fish and Wildlife Service officials and many others that that film was really the sort of turning point um, for listing the species, which is shows you the power of storytelling and, and visual media
0: what's the uh the name of your film?
1: It's called a Ghost in the Making and if anyone well, wants to see it, they can go to rustypatched p a t c h e d dot com and watch it for free or share it at events or whatever they'd like to do.
0: Cool. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of photographers that want to get involved in some kind of project like that, but don't necessarily know how to get started or where do you even begin in terms of finding something that you're passionate about or, you know, finding the time. What would you suggest people do just to kind of even get curious or or get going on thinking about a project like that?
1: Well, I think one of the biggest mistakes is that people um, feel that they need to go to Africa or Antarctica or wherever, to some faraway place to tell a story, because these are the stories that they often see featured in National Geographic or, or, you know, on Discovery Channel or whatever. Really, some of the most important stories that need to be told are in our own communities. These are the stories that are often overlooked. So there could be, you know, I would say the very first thing to do is spend some time, number one, thinking about, what you're passionate about, you know, what you're really good at, where you can really lend a voice. But then on the other hand, just, you know, spend some time in your community guaranteed. There's a, an issue with a river or um, a place that is a, you know, a local green space. It's going to be one of my favorite stories. A friend of mine, um, dear friend, Krista Slyer, who's a incredible conservation photographer um, had done some work around this um, river in, in DC and, um, the Anacostia river, which, you know, used to be this amazing wetland and, and river system. And it's just so polluted at this point. And so this is a thing that a lot of people I think felt was just like a place to dump garbage essentially. And she's been bringing a lot of attention to this rich river that runs through our nation's capital and trying to help restore it. Um, but also like she does things like there was a, a forest very close to her house and it was basically cleared to um, build a Whole Foods, which I think is so ironic, you know, <laughs> you have got this company that's, you know, touting doing good things for the environment, and yet environment's being destroyed. So there are stories like that everywhere, where places that are like refugia for for salamanders and deer and birds are being cleared, and you can make a difference. You can help people realize, hey, if you cut this down, these are the things that live here, like you're not just cutting down a a waste space, you're actually making a lot of animals homeless. So there are a lot of stories. And, and, you know, you can take different approaches. I think with conservation photography, you can either take an approach of um, this is urgent, we need to do something, or you can compel people through beauty and wonder starting that direction, which is kind of what I tend to do most often is I want people to see what they stand to lose first before sort of waving the flag of urgency or either doing it together. I'm not always like a, I think there are some photographers who are necessarily working on issues that are really, really tough all the time. Like really, you know, like whether it's like rhino poaching and things like that. Um, I tend to work more from the side of this is wonderful. Let's do what we can to help keep it around. Mm.
0: <clears throat> I love that. Yeah. I think, starting locally, it makes a lot of sense. Cause like you said, there's a lot, there's probably everywhere you live, there's something that someone could learn more about and get involved in terms of telling the story.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Without question. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is like, you may not receive national recognition for what you're doing. Um, but if you imagine, um, and we can talk a little bit about the meet your neighbors project that your friend David Hunter was a, a part of. Yeah. Um, You know, the whole idea of that project was that I was thinking if we could get people around the world working in their own communities, these might be small impacts locally, but together it makes a big impact globally. And so I think, um, you know, these local projects add up. They make a big difference because water in your community ends up being someone else's water down the, you know, down the watershed. And so we're helping each other out through these small efforts.
0: Yeah, I would love to talk more about that project because the more I learned about it uh, from David Hunter, I started to get more and more intrigued because I felt like it had a lot of different, had a lot of um, complementary, how do I say this, impacts in terms of what a photographer gains out of doing the project. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're getting an education about, you know, the natural world and their local environment, but then they're also learning some... Photographic techniques, uh, including macro and lighting and things like mm-hmm. that, where they, you know, it's like an educational journey, both photographically and uh, um, conservation uh, oriented. So I would love to hear more about uh, your vision f- for that project and kind of how you went about uh, disseminating it across the country.
1: Yeah. And actually, it ended up being an international project, um, which is still going on to this day believe it or not, even though I'm not as involved with it. um, But so essentially, um, I guess in 2008, maybe a little bit earlier, a friend of mine, Scottish wildlife photographer, Neil Binby, had taken inspiration from a couple of photographers, Susan Middleton and David Litschweiger, who were assistants of the famous fashion photographer, Richard Avedon. And Avedon was famous for um, photographing people against brightly lit white skies or white backgrounds, walls, those kinds of things. And they took that and they did a book called here today um, in the eighties, I believe. And that book was the first, to my knowledge, the first photographic book, looking at wildlife shot in front of different colored backgrounds in the studio, that kind of thing. And it, and I think had a big impact. Um, So Neil was really impressed by this and he developed as far as I know, the first person to develop this technique in the field, what he, and he created something called the Field Studio. And Neil's original prototype was very um, it was very cumbersome. He was using these big studio flashes and carrying a lot of really heavy gear into the field. But what he was able to do is, essentially what he did was develop this technique where you take a white piece of acrylic, um, semi-opaque or translucent piece of acrylic. You have a flash that... Um, basically passes through the acrylic, blowing out the background, and then you have a fill flash. And between that simple technique, you can photograph orchids and frogs and fish and and beetles and all sorts of things in the field where they're found um, and then release them. Or you don't have to dig up a plant. You can just basically put the background behind the plant and photograph it like in a mini studio and neil and i were having a conversation about this technique i was so impressed by it um this was probably 2008 i think around october or so and neil was saying well i love it but i wish it could become a movement and it was so funny because i had been thinking quite a lot about like i was feeling a little bit i was mainly working in the carolinas and i was really working hard to document this local biodiversity that we had you know salamanders and realizing that the area that I lived in in South Carolina was a temperate rainforest, but most people still don't realize that there's a temperate rainforest in the Carolinas. And I was thinking, like, how many more people around the world are in the same situation where they're passionate about their local wildlife, but they're not getting the attention that some of these more globetrotting celebrated photographers are getting? And I realized that this technique that Neil had developed would be the perfect sort of unifying palette for all of these different photographers. I would it was fairly simple to learn how to do. And then I was thinking if we could have photographers around the world working in their own backyard and then they take that material and they present it back to the community whether it's through talks, whether it's exhibitions, so on and so forth, together we could have a huge impact. And so that's sort of the the basis of Meet Your Neighbors. So it was launched in in I think February of two thousand and nine. And ultimately we had photographers all over the world throughout europe asia africa australia all of these different places um, throughout the u.s of course working on local stories and people took various approaches to it Um, for example some people like david did a lot of work in caves so he was documenting cave species Um, I initially started doing a lot of work with salamanders and just local things in the Carolinas, but ultimately moved it more towards my bee work. And I'm still using the technique for that. Um, There are people that's focused on fish, people that work on freshwater mussels. All of these images work together to create this huge body of work um, with exhibits in places like Chicago and Rome and, and India. I mean, it was just really amazing to see how people use that technique. And Quite frankly, that technique itself has, has become so ubiquitous, I think, among macro photographers that you see it all the time. Really, people don't, it, it's just become so used so regularly that the, the project sort of doesn't have the branding attached to it anymore. It's just a way for people to document things in an appealing kind of way. But it was an amazing experience. And that really was my first taste of how you could unite a group of photographers to, to uh, work together to, to, to push for a big cause but on an individual basis.
0: Yeah. Well, well, looking back, what what were the things that you did kind of logistically to um, proliferate it and make it as successful as it was?
1: Well, when we launched the, when we, when we launched the project, we knew we had to have a little bit of um, uh, seed funding. And so we got a little bit of money from the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, where Neil is from. And that was enough money that we could put together a website, we could um, buy some initial kits, like I figured, well, there might be photographers in South America or India who can't get some of the materials we need. So we bought kits for the photographers and the kits basically included, you know, the background material, um, instructions, um, various things like that, that we could send out to people, um, as well as materials to create like clear underwater tanks. Um, and we also reached out to the world's leading conservation organizations saying like, for example, I remember we sent a note to the Ukraine and said, um, I think it was, I think it was WWF in the Ukraine. And we said, Hey, um, here's this project. Do you have a biologist working in the field, um, who needs to document what they're finding? Um, here's the protocol. We will train, um, the photographer, the biologist to do the technique and so on and so forth. And once we began to do that, we had all of our materials. We reached out to magazines. We got stories in magazines online. And I wrote, goodness, Neil and I wrote countless articles. Um, it really just began to take off. And even now I have people who want to get involved, even though I'm not as involved at the helm anymore. I, It's exciting to see that it still has merit 11 years later.
0: Yeah. Yeah, We're. I'm involved in another project called Nature First Photography, where we're trying to get it. Off of the ground a little bit more. Our goal is to get it to ten thousand photographers by the end Whoa. of twenty twenty. That's cool. And that's kind of my selfish reason for asking because we're uh, we're trying all kinds of different things to try to get more awareness around the project and and uh, it's I, I like what what I heard you say is a lot a lot of outreach to you know publications and things of that nature that people are already reading. So I think. I will definitely take note of that. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'd be happy to give you any information I have um, anytime to help that. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about that project if you have a second to tell me because I it sounds really interesting.
0: Yes. Well, listeners are going to be bored, but that's okay because um, I talk about it a lot, but that's all right. Um, so about, gosh, I was going to say about, Five years ago, um, there was a photographer here in Colorado. His name's Eric Stensland. He uh, he has a gallery in Estes Park at the base of Rocky Mountain National Park,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and he he's just like kind of the rest of us, you know. He'd go out, take pictures of these really beautiful places, um, share them online, sell his sell his art in his gallery, and then one summer he returned to one of the lakes that he photographed couple years prior. And it was totally just destroyed by human impact. Um, You know, just the number of visitors and their lack of education on how to interact with the natural environment in terms of leave no trace and things of that nature. Um, And that caused him to, you know, first of all, he was like, I think I'm the one that caused this because I'm the only person I know of that has actually photographed this place. You know, no one has really done it before me. Wow and so he just started reaching out to other photographers to see if other people had similar experiences and have noticed um, any impacts on the places they love to photograph um, due to photography um, and of course a lot of people said yeah that's that's kind of been my experience as well so a group of us uh, gathered here in Ridgeway Colorado about 10, 11 of us and we just... We kind of just outlined what we thought were some of the root causes of the problem in terms of, you know, geotagging, location sharing online, Instagram, uh, mm-hmm. just lack of education, uh, lack of, you know, people understanding the impacts that they're having, things of that nature. And the end result of that work was that we developed uh, seven seven principles for people to follow when, uh, when they're out in nature as a photographer. And so those are called the, the nature first principles and uh, you can read more about it at nature first org. Um, but uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to spread the movement and get more people to just start to consider their impacts. Um, not only, you know, physical impacts, but also, you know, our impacts as, <laughs> as you know humans we are we are social creatures and we like to share with others mm-hmm. uh, which you know unfortunately can have some negative side effects like you know sharing locations of places that can't handle lots of uh impact that it can have a huge impact so i don't know if you've ever if you've had that experience of some of the places you love to photograph if you've seen them over the years get you know impacted by just the amount of people going there and taking pictures there and things of that nature. Have have you had that experience at all?
1: Um, I wouldn't say that I've had it so much, at least on a a pressure on a location because of of my work, but I definitely know that it's something to be super careful of, especially if you're photographing things like orchids or amphibians or snakes or things like that, that, that people could potentially collect and poach. Um, I guess the closest thing that I've experienced and my biggest fear is um, probably, well, last year, Um, the news was released that friends and I had discovered, rediscovered the world's largest bee, Megakali Pluto in Indonesia. And I had specifically gone there to photograph the bee because it had been thought to be extinct for a number of years. And um, although a friend and I, Eli Wyman, who at the time well, with Princeton University, we had been thinking, oh, we'd love to find this bee if it still exists. We got a sense of urgency after um, a single specimen showed up on eBay and ended up selling for like $9,100 US. Wow. Yeah. Initially, at one point, the bidding went up to $39,000. And I was terrified because I was interested in the bee, but I knew that it was found only in a remote part of the world and that collectors from that part of the world to be able to sell that bee for that much money. That's a lot of money to me, but in that part of the world, it's a tremendous amount of money. People could live off of that for a very long time. And so I suddenly felt this incredible urgency to to do something. And I wrote an article for National Geographic, which sort of outlined um, the problem with this bee. And I was criticized both by the, some members of the scientific community and others for you know, drawing attention to the issue. But I felt like you know, if it was left in darkness that that poachers and collectors would know either way that the bee was being sold and that it would continue to be traded um, because people who do that for a living know that they pay attention to what's selling. Right. So yeah, through a, a incredibly long process, which I won't bore your, re- your listeners with, um, we ended up going over and rediscovering the species. And I was the first person to ever photograph it and document it. And I knew that it was going to be big news, but I had no idea the kind of media attention that it would receive. Um, it broke in February of last year, almost a year ago, and ended up having 2.3 billion hits in the media. Um, Jeez. It, be. it was in everything. Um, you name it, Time Newsweek, the New, York, New York Times, National Geographic, um, everywhere around the world. And it got so much attention that um, the Indonesian government um, there were some people who were tied with the government felt that, so we were there, we weren't doing any scientific research, we weren't collecting, but the rumor mill started up and there were some people that were jealous of our rediscovery. And I was called a biopirate in the media and I was banned from Indonesia and all of these different things. And we we were cleared of everything that was said. But as a result of that, um, my worst fear at the time came true in that, um, that some people began to... To collect the bee and try to sell more of them it wasn't a tremendous amount at least to my knowledge but fortunately i had enough people that were sort of in the know that people would send me um, photos and, and messages that they were receiving saying hey i received this from a collector um, they want to sell me this and i was able to use that information um, over time i'm still working on this process but i was able to help get um, certain i um, didn't be vague on purpose certain online organizations to um, stop selling the bee. And so it's, it's more protected than it was, but there was this moment where I was really, really concerned that, that because I said, I was very vague about where we photographed it, but even still word spreads fast among locals. And um, basically some people figured out roughly where it was at or other nests were found and so for a while there, I was like, oh, my gosh, I've really done the opposite of what I wanted to do. Um, and that's a really terrible feeling.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a tough conundrum because, you know, there's a couple of places here close to me in southwest Colorado that are, you know, people on Instagram want to go there and replicate in some of the imagery that they see other photographers obtaining. Mm-hmm. And um, they're just places that they just cannot handle the that much visitation you know it's high alpine tundra it's it's yeah. places that that just they just it just cannot handle the traffic that that the popularity of some of these places is getting and uh i'm always uh second guessing myself like oh should i should i tell people where this place is and you know there's a there's a place here called i it's called ice lake basin um And I was asked by a a local magazine called San Juan's Mountain Journal to write an article about it. And I really, I I had to take a few days to think about it because on one hand, I didn't want to draw attention to this place because I knew that it couldn't handle uh, a lot of of people going there. But on the other hand, I felt like it was a good opportunity for me to tell the story of that place and also give people some experience tell some of those impacts that people are having on that place and to give them some guidance on if you're going to go visit this place, here's what you need to think about. So in the end, I, I opted to write the article and, and hopefully, you know, some people going there might think twice before they set up their tent close to the lake or before they trample through some of the wildflowers or whatever. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah um, I definitely struggled of whether or not I should publish the article or not. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, especially if you get a few followers, I mean, you know, people pay attention. I've gotten to the point where even, you know, on a more selfish level, I tend to keep more of my work private until I've got quite a a lot of work. Like if I'm starting something new, I'm always experimenting with different things. I've gotten to the point where I resist the urge to post a lot of it on social media just because there's such a mentality of like, Oh, I love that. I want to figure out how to do that. I really learned during meet your neighbors that like, if I want to do something original um, for myself, I need to kind of keep it to myself because there is this idea that like, I want to replicate the same thing. And that comes to places and photographing certain kinds of species as well.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's, and then you, and then you start battling, you know, people say, Oh, you're a gatekeeper or you're a hypocrite. And it's like, like, you just can't win.
1: (laughs) I know it's true, but I do think when it comes down to species, um, you know, anything that I'm able to find, unless I just stumble upon something, I've done the research to figure out how to find it. And it's not saying that that makes me special. It's just saying that like the information's out there, if you're willing to work for it. And I feel like if people are willing to work for how to figure out where to find certain things, then they're also going to cherish that information that they've got and realize how hard it is to figure out where that is. And, and so I, Honestly, if it means that that I've been able to help something, but at the same time um, kind of keep it secretive, I don't have any problem with that because at the end of the day, I'm not doing this to aggrandize myself. I'm trying to help conserve these things, and, and that does sometimes require attention. Um, with the giant bee, there were so many comments on different articles. You'd get your normal, like, kill it with fire and, you know. Oh, God. <laughs> all this kind of stuff. But there was also a lot of comments like, this species has been you know, thought extinct for 20 years and now somebody's found it and photographed it, you know, leave it alone. And it's like, well, you've got to understand that like had this species, in my opinion, if it had not gotten the attention that it got, it would have just potentially slipped silently into obscurity. And at the very least we've brought in the attention of the government, you know, Indonesian government and other conservation organizations to help protect it. And I still have work to do, but, but I'm making progress and it's only because of the attention that it received. So, you know, it's always just trying to find that balance. I think that's what I always tell my boys. It's like, life is about balance. Sometimes you're going to go in one direction or the other, where you just have to constantly recalibrate your life.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's good. I think a lot of us uh, landscape and nature photographers who make money off of selling our photography, it, it becomes even more of a like uh, internal kind of mental struggle because on one hand you're like if i don't publish and share this image no one's gonna ever buy it and therefore i can't you know live off of it and on the other hand if i do publish it and share it it's gonna have a negative impact so it's and i feel like if we don't share why some of these places are so special like you said there's no awareness of the place and the challenges that place faces so um it's it's like you said i think it's just i feel like it's uh just being thoughtful about it yeah, and yeah. and thinking about it and trying to find a balance. I, f- I feel like that's about as best as we can do.
1: <laughs> yeah. We're all going to make missteps and I've actually been thinking a lot about like just, you know, the irony of the fact that, you know, I might drive, you know, five hours or six hours or longer to go photograph something. And then, you know, coming back, looking at the front of my car, there's like a hundred, 200 dead insects on there. And it's like, it's just, it's it's, 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 as bleak as that sounds. And I promise I'm not a very bleak person, but it's always good to remind myself that like, I'm always having an impact and it's always humbling to go. Like we are all having impacts. Sometimes we do better than other at other times, but you know, we have to be cognizant and thoughtful as you say to uh, do this work to the best of our ability.
0: Right. It's like, if you don't try to make an effort to bring awareness, uh, yeah you're not going to have any impact on the environment but on the other hand if you don't make the effort you're not going to move the needle the other direction either so <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah true I think one thing that's helped me is that it, I didn't become a, what I would consider a full-time conservationist until about five years ago before that I was photographing products and art directing shoots on things you know various different kinds of products and and doing some design work and all of that. And, you know, that allowed me on one hand to shoot the kinds of things that I wanted to shoot for the most part, um, or tell the stories that I wanted to tell, but also like it was hard at times. And I think I finally realized, and that's why I go back to this idea of being a communicator is that I really like working in conservation and learning about policy and, and writing articles and giving presentations and all those things that mm, helped me, Empower me to think make better decisions, I think there was when I first got started in photography, there was this real push to say like i'm a full time professional or I'm this or that, and honestly, it's like most a lot of the people that were saying that were doing other things anyway, and my goal was just to dedicate everything in my life to to conservation and I think i it took me longer to get there, but I also kind of did it through a series of calculated risks that have allowed me to to bring my career to where it's at and so I think it's helped me be more effective in the long run. Um, and so I think what I'm getting at is that, like, if there is a story that, that you really care about, you know, maybe, maybe you're not necessarily needing to publish those images in a magazine, but maybe you're producing a portfolio of work or a self-published book that you can give to decision makers. It doesn't have to go out to the media. You can deliver that book directly to a, to a, a politician or a, a staffer for a politician who didn't know it mattered to anybody. Um, there's a lot of things you can do that doesn't necessarily require you, um, getting the work out there or having a commission to do it and that kind of stuff.
0: Mm. No, I, I think that's, that's, that's critical. I feel like we feel a lot of people feel like if you don't make a big splash, then you're not making an impact. And I think to your point, there's other ways to make an impact where, you know, people, you don't have to become famous to make an impact.
1: No, you don't. And honestly, I think sometimes it impedes what you're doing. It depends. I mean, One thing I really love about working with World Wildlife Fund is that a lot of the work I do never sees the light of day in terms of social media. Um, It's just quiet, sort of behind the scenes stuff that I've been working on over the last five years, and that was a bit of an adjustment for me. But I think what it's taught me is that a lot of conservation happens in you know behind closed doors, um, you know, with with influencers and people who, not social media influencers, obviously, but like decision makers who. Care about things, but maybe not necessarily want to put their name on stuff, or it's just very complicated. And so, I think there is all different ways to have an impact. It's not just about getting, uh, you know, a gazillion likes on social media.
0: Well, yeah, and it's unfortunate too that you know policymakers and politicians are always you know second guessing all of the decisions they make because they know that at the end of the day, if they want to continue their work as a politician and make that impact, they have to be very strategic in terms of how they uh, introduce certain types of legislation, because they know that a multi-billion dollar corporation can see a bill they introduced and they can, they have the, the means, the financial means to, to basically do a campaign to have them not be reelected. So it's, gosh, I couldn't even imagine, you know, like the, how, you know, politicians get a lot of negative press, but I think, there's a reason why people are so calculated in politics.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And sometimes it drives me insane. Oh, It drives me super insane. (laughs) But, but to your point, it's like, um, it's, I think one of the problems, (laughs) the world is so polarized at this point, and I'm not going to go into all that, but I think one of the issues is that we feel that we have to strike somebody down with our words or our, our images or our mission. And, Honestly, like sometimes you can get a lot done bit by bit um, but with working with people. It doesn't mean you have to like, like when you come into a conversation, let's call it a conversation with somebody that you don't agree with on most things. It doesn't mean that you're endorsing them. It just means that like at the end of the day, you have a vision of where you want to go. Um, it's not like making a deal with the devil. It's like, I care enough about my cause that sometimes I'm going to have to like play within different work within a system that I may not necessarily agree with all the time. And, and and what I mean by that is like sometimes going like, I would love to shoot for the moon on this, but really this is a piece that I can have an impact. This is the lever that I can pull right now. And so like not putting all the chips on the table all the time is is sometimes okay. So like if all you can do, and I say all in quotes, is all you can do is save a local pond, for example, um, or help somebody to not spray around the vegetation because, you know, it's affecting frogs, that's a, that's a big deal. I always tell people that like, you might not be able to save the world, but if you can make your backyard a good place for nature, then that's huge because every person's yard, if you've got a normal backyard, even if it's quite small is home to like thousands and thousands of wildlife to create like thousands of different individual animals and plants and all these kinds of things. And so you have on a micro scale, uh, your own little, your own little wildlife reserve. And so Your impacts are impacting not just your backyard, but your neighbor's yard. So if you're making places for bees and butterflies and and flies and all these other things, they're going to in turn disperse from your yard and go forward. And you never know like what kind of impact the things you're doing are going to have on your neighbor. So you plant native plants, maybe they come by and admire the, the things you've got in your yard and you say, here's some seeds or here's a cutting or, you know, take some of these with you. And then I've seen it happen in my own community over and over where I just start at first, people are like, who's that uh, crazy guy crawling around in the yard chasing bees and <laughs> ripping up his lawn and all that kind of stuff? But then people become curious, and I can share plants with them, and you see them popping up in other places in the neighborhood. So these kinds of small actions do add up to a lot. And I think in this world where so many people feel overwhelmed by what's happening in the world, they feel, I think, so powerless by the news. Being able to have control of some sort over the space that, that is within your realm of influence is so incredibly important these days.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks man. That's been, it's been really fun chatting about that stuff. I, um, I'd love to hear your recommendations, uh, around who you think would be good to have here on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Two people come to mind. Um, the first is, is a good friend of mine, Stephen David Johnson, uh, Stephen is an incredible underwater photographer, but the things he focuses on are are different than many underwater photographers. He's primarily working in these vernal pools, these temporary pools in places like Virginia, photographing um, salamander uh, migrations and um, spawning and these tiny fairy shrimp and all of these things that are literally like right in front of us, but we don't see. His work is just Absolutely gorgeous. Um, so I would, I think he would make a great subject, and also my friend Morgan Hyam, who's been making some amazing films and photography and doing a lot of really tough conservation work over the past several years. Um, Morgan's a great storyteller, and she'd make a, an excellent subject for your listeners.
0: Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much. This has been uh, a lot of fun.
1: Thank you so much, Matt. And uh, I would just close by saying that even though a lot of the work that I do is pretty heavy. Um, I really take a lot of joy in being outside and in nature. And I would remind listeners to, to realize that that maybe they can't save the world, um, on their own, but, but spending time in nature is good for, for everybody. And, uh, I would encourage them to tell their own stories. I love that.
0: Ah, well, thanks to Clay for joining me on the podcast. You are a huge inspiration to me and so many other photographers. So keep up the great work. All right. Well, I wanted to take a moment to thank our generous patrons that are supporting the podcast at the $20 or more level over on patreon at patreon.com slash f stop and listen i have linked to each person's website over on my website in the hopes that listeners will support them and their work as well take a look at their websites and reach out to them thank them for supporting the show tell them what you like about their work we're in this together as a community, so let's support each other. Without further ado, thanks to Gary Randall, David Kingham, Daniela Francois, Jack Curran, Eric Stensland, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, James Bacavoy, William Nurse, Anton Everine, Laurie Berenson, Richard Wong, Matthias Joland, Suzanne Mathia, Zachary Smith, Frank Otto-Peterson, Ken Dono, Michael Rung, John Whittaker, Jason Clardy, and Jim Valencourt. All right, let's talk about who's coming up. Next up, we have Sarah Lindsay. She is a talented Canadian photographer and Instagram sensation. We'll also be talking with my friend Chris Byrne. He's won lots of awards and teaches workshops with Gary Randall. We'll be chatting with Tony Torino, the founder and owner of Bend Photo Tours in Oregon. And hopefully by now, I'll have sat down and chatted with some of my friends at the Outsiders Photography Conference in Kanab, Utah. And lastly, we have a really exciting episode coming in April, where we'll be recording with a panel of all-women photographers. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.